Howdy, I'm Kate Kavanaugh, and you're listening to the Mind, Body, and Soil podcast, where we're laying the groundwork for our land, ourselves, and for generations to come by looking at the way every thread of life is connected to one another. Communities above ground mirror the communities below the soil, which mirror the vast community of the cosmos. As the saying goes, as above, so below. Join me as we take a curious journey into agriculture, biology, history, spirituality, health, and so much more. I can't wait to unearth all of these incredible topics alongside you. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Mind, Body, and Soil podcast. I am your host, Kate Kavanaugh, and I am honored to be here as we explore the threads of what it means to be human woven into this earth. I want to tell you that I have been recording up a storm, and I have so many exciting interviews scheduled and on the books for release coming up, and I am just feeling myself return to a sense of aliveness through the sharing of this podcast with you, and so grateful to be back from my accidental hiatus, and grateful that you stuck around um, and and waited for me, and it's just... This truly is work that brings me joy, and my connection with each and every one of you also brings me joy. This week, I have a very special interview with author Rebecca Claren, who released her book, The Cost of Free Land, Jews, Lakota, and an American Inheritance, back at the beginning of October. Rebecca and I recorded this interview in late September before the events of October 7th and the following Israel-Hamas war. And I do want to make that note at the outset. I don't think I can know how or even if that would have changed the timber of this interview, but I think it does bear noting. And I think another thing that bears noting is I feel a little bit out of my depth exploring some of these topics, but I don't want that to stop me from doing so. And so as I explore some of these topics, I'm probably going to make some mistakes. Um, and I'm just, I'm just going to go forward with it. And I, I, it's funny, ever since this interview, a couple of Rebecca's quotes have really, really stuck with me. And as we've been exploring some concepts of story on the podcast that I think we're going to begin to explore even deeper, one of the questions that Rebecca asked was, what are the stories we tell and what are the stories we don't tell and why? And I've been thinking a lot about that lately in both my own microcosms and macrocosms and really, really wondering what that is and how the stories we don't tell shape our world in ways that may be invisible to us as yet. And how do we begin to uncover and unearth those stories and bring them into the light and begin to change the texture and the space of of our world and the way that we understand it and understand our place within it. Um, this is a really 
great interview. Um, I'm not sure it's a great interview on my part. It certainly is on Rebecca's. And her book is fantastic and it is available wherever books are sold. As always, we have those links in the show notes for you. I just want to put a little reminder at the front here that if you enjoy this podcast, if you could leave a rating and review wherever you listen, it really helps people find the podcast and get to dive deeper into Mind, Body, and Soil, and I deeply appreciate it. I cannot wait for you to hear this interview and to hear all the interviews we have coming up next. It is a pleasure to be back here with you. And without further ado, let's dive into this interview with Rebecca Claren, who wrote The Cost of Free Land, Jews, Lakota, and an American Inheritance. Oh, I don't know how you found Ed or how Ed found you. Mutual friend, actually. Mutual friend. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Ed has a lot of those and is I mean, he's one of my favorite people because I, he's one of the most prolific readers I know and I try mm. to surround myself with prolific readers. Me too. Um, I also love yeah. to boss people around about what to read. It's really my favorite oh. thing to do. Oh, I love that. I, I hope you, even I hope you do some of that here. I, I hope you do to. some of that here. One of my favorite things about this podcast is that every episode usually produces a reading list. Oh, awesome. Um, yeah, I, it, God, I could really nerd out about that. Okay, I'll have to think about it. But yeah, yeah, I mean, I'm that person who's like at the library and I see someone looking at the shelf and I'm like, oh, read that book. It's amazing. And they're like, who are you? I don't even, you don't even <laughs> yeah, know me. I love that. <laughs> um, I love that. And I think actually your, your penchant for reading mm-hmm. comes through in what a storyteller you are. And this is mm-hmm. actually what I wanted to start with was... I wanted to, before we really dive into the book, I kind of wanted to pull back and talk about story itself, Mm. because I thought that this was such a salient theme in the book to talk about the ways in which we tell stories, both uh, within a family, uh, within a nation, uh, within different settings and how they connect to place, how they connect to time and our sense of it, and the idea that maybe they're linear when in, in, they're, they're not necessarily, um, and how they're also rooted in language. And if it's all right with you, I pulled several quotes of you talking about story sure. because I, I think that this is this is really important I think to a lot of the conversations that we're having right now is the way in which we view story. And and you just did such an incredible job. So I'm just going to pull a couple of these quotes. Um, The first is, in America, we are raised on stories that teach us that life moves in a straight line with history safely behind us. After spending time in Native American communities, after reading ancient Jewish texts, after learning about the entangled realities of white immigrants and indigenous nations, I now believe that the past is threaded to today like a string through a seam. Look closer, and the string itself contains many strands. To pull on one is to expose a complex weave. I have a second that that one of the questions that drove you throughout this process was, what are the stories we tell and what are the stories we don't tell and why? Uh, which I think is just so important. And then I have, I have, I think everything you mentioned about story in here, but I'll read one more. 
For as long as I can remember, I have leaned towards storytellers. My own children ask me all the time for a real story, something that really happened, that's funny. Rarely in any of these stories, the ones I was told and the ones I tell now, does the narrator cast themselves as the bad guy. It's only recently that I find myself listening to these stories with an ear towards what is left unsaid. Listening in this way, the spine of each narrative cracks to reveal a far more potent meaning. I just, I just love this. And I want to finish up with last quote, because of course, <laughs> both the stories we choose to tell and our decision not to tell others create the myth we pass to future generations. And, and so I just, I want to talk a little bit about story and also where story becomes a part of myth making. Uh, and, and to kind of maybe tease out the difference between the two and just what story means to you. Oh, I mean, I've been, I, so I think I've been thinking a lot about how from the time I was really young, I have had this sort of deep existential question and real, like a deep realization of my experience of like this conversation we're having right now is not necessarily the conversation, the experience that you are having. And I, I think that reality, that sort of deep concern that I, when I realized this as a young person, um, it's probably part of what has driven me to both be a reader and a writer is that idea that as writers, we can extend, it's an imperfect solution, but we can really extend our own ideas through time and space onto a page and like feel more connected to others. And it's, it, it's imperfect. I think there's also some sort of longing for control to think if I can communicate super perfectly here, everyone will know exactly what I need and what I want and, and what's happening. And that doesn't always work. But I, I think that's like the deep foundation to my sense of my longing for story and and my longing for storytelling to understand the world through story. But part of that is that real that's that kind of other later realization of what's going on at the margins here, that that it's not just what is said, but is what is left mm-hmm. unsaid that is as equally important. Yes. And I do feel like, you know, what's the difference between story and myth? I'm not really sure. To be honest, I don't know the difference, but um, other than like maybe myth is something that we we take to be true when it's mm. not, when it's that mm. there's like, I, I feel like when you talk about myth, you're starting to sort of have an opinion that the story is not maybe as accurate as you always believed that it was. And um, so... To me, I think there's like a, a wobbly nature between all of these things. And I, I, it was, I was very driven. I have always been driven to sort of recognize the limitations of, of journalism and storytelling and, and truth telling and also feel like this is what we have. So, and it matters so deeply to me. So I, I'm going to use the tools as imperfect as they are to make connections with other people. I think that's such an important perspective and take that 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 stories 
we're limited. And the way that each of us perceives something is going to be based on our personal experiences and how it's shaped that. And I think that the way that you tell all of the stories in The Cost of Free Land has an eye for the way that story is passed through generations, how it's passed through the lens of history and what is said and isn't said and what is existing, like you said, at those margins or those voids of what might be unsaid. Um, And I just think that this is so important because I think oftentimes we don't even think more often than not, history is something that has been, it, it is what is said, and what we need to explore is what hasn't been said. Exactly, exactly. I mean, who's, whose version of, I mean, this is not a new idea, but this idea that like, who gets to tell what happened? Who's the storyteller? Mm-hmm. We in America tend to hi, uh, think that if something's written down, it's more valuable than something mm-hmm. that is said. So as you know, oral traditions have often been discounted as being as legitimate yeah. as something that was written. But who could write and who print? Who had access to printing presses and disseminating that kind of information versus the oral history and traditions of the Lakota Nation, for example, where the story, the way the story was told, it was very important. It wasn't written down. It was this like the experience of hearing an elder tell you a story. Um, there was a lot of action and and meaning made from the tone of voice and the physicality of the storytelling, as I understand it. So that those things are lost when we write them down. And um I mean, that's just another piece of what's at the white space around the edges of a telling. And and yeah. I will say, you know, for me, I grew up being so captivated by these stories of my ancestors on the South Dakota prairie, my uncle Louie, who could stand on the back of a horse, and my great great grandmother who would do this Jewish ritual called a mikvah, and she could she would even in the winter, it it marks the end of your <laughs> menstrual cycle and you you take a bath. And mm-hmm. um even in the middle of South Dakota on the icy prairie, she would go dunk herself in the creek behind the house. This is like this incredible story that was the main, one of the major stories that people tell in my family about the prairie. And it's so interesting to me, like that's an amazing story, but also why is that the piece that everyone tells instead of Mm. like, there was no story really until I started to ask about Native Americans and like, this land that we were on, that we've been given for free, had until relatively recently been Lakota land. Um, no one talked about that. No one talked about, you know, the Native people who were living on the nearby reservations. I, as part of my research for this book, interviewed every single person of my mom's generation and older who is still alive. The people of my mom's generation, you know, they were no, they were not on the prairie, but my um, actually no. Well, a few cousins actually grew up on the ranch, um, but they had hand-me-down stories. And so once I started to really do apply some interviewing skills and reporting skills to these conversations, instead of just be sort of a passive mm-hmm. listener in the way my kids are today of tell me a story, something that something true, um, that then I started to learn more complicated, a few more complicated layers to these, to the history there. But 
you know, why? Why is that the one that they told over and over again? There's something about like, she was so religious. Look at her. She was so perfect. Mm. This great grandmother, this great, great grandmother of yours. She was so tough. She was so uncomplaining. Um, Mm. She made the best of things. Uh, And shouldn't you do that too? Mm. I, I love this question of what is beneath the stories we tell as much as why do we, you know, why do we tell those particular stories? And it's, it's, it's to pass down. I mean, so much of what you said, right. At some point that was perhaps a value of who was telling that story and the lens that they told that story through was to impart some piece of that. And I think, I think that's true for all stories we tell that within families and also, I mean, within entire nations is. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, no, go ahead. Well, I was just thinking, I mean, it, I've been a journalist for 23 years and I do think I couldn't have written this book or, or even, I don't think when I started my career, it was even, I didn't have the awareness that until you understand something more deeply before you interview someone, you don't know what they're telling you versus the pieces that they're leaving on the cutting room floor, even within an interview. So I think for years I would go out and I would report and I would often feel like it was very important to be bringing fresh eyes and, and just sort Mm -hmm. of a open heart, open mind to these conversations. And I, I agree that's also, that's true, but if you don't have deep understanding of a place or an issue or a community, then then you don't actually have the tools to sort of interrogate what isn't being said as much as what is. Mm. I, I want to ask just because you've brought this in, I really want to ask like what as people that want to better understand stories, like how, how can individuals, how can reporters gain those tools and that depth of knowledge in order to better understand what is, what is not being said within, within a story? I mean, I think it's really different depending on where you are and who you're talking to, but I do think the, and I know reporters and often myself are on deadline and are working with limited resources and limited time. So I have a lot of compassion for anyone out there in the field trying to do their job as well as they can uh, with often just not enough time and money. But the more you can have done a deep dive, read as much as possible, found oral histories about a place Mm. or a people, like not just be limited to like one book about a place, but really look at you know, in a perfect world, you have time to look at how is the the news of this place been reported in the more recent past, in the deep past. Um, I did a lot of looking at old newspaper articles to understand how South Dakota was, you know, when my family was there, when the Lakota were engaging in conversation with the United States government. How's that all being reported in the newspapers at the time? Of course, that's Mm -hmm. just another sort of piece of the story. But I have this mentor, Judge Abby Abinanti, who is in the book. Mm -hmm. She's a Yurok. She's a Yurok elder. She's the chief justice of the Yurok nation. She also was a state of California superior court justice for a very long time. She's amazing. And, uh, and has been a real 
help for me in, in trying to think about this project and how to go about. And she's the one who said, you know, to me early on, she said, the truth is made up of so many different truths. It's like when you have a case, when when you're interviewing eyewitnesses in a court case, they all were there. They all saw the car hit the person. And yet they all have a slightly different take on what happened, even though they were all there, they all saw it. And, and so you have to take, listen to all of them as much as you can. And it's sort of where all those truths overlap that you start to have a real sense of what's really going on. And I think that quote about that you quoted me about the complex weave. Yeah, that's really what I was trying to get at. That that is the more you can include, the more versions of people's perspectives that you can include, the more you start to understand the complexity and maybe hopefully more of the truth, you know, of what's going on. And I will be the first to say I have worked so hard to try and get this story right. And I'm sure I've missed the mark. Like, I I hate that. I hmm. hate that. And I also think it's inevitable because I'm an imperfect person and I'm an imperfect storyteller and I'm coming with my own perspective and my take on this story is, is just one take. You know what I mean? I absolutely know what you mean. And I, I, I think that's a, that's a beautiful, you call it a disclaimer, but I also think that the work that you've done to show all of these different, the depth to which you have gone uh, is really beautiful and really, really creates something that I think is a spectacular weaving together of a lot of different threads of story. And I wonder with that, what are my goals for, for this interview? I'll just tell you and whoever is listening, um, <laughs> is I really want to draw people into the book. And I want to do that by maybe teasing at some overarching themes where people can really get into the idea that they want to pick up and read this story. So I, I don't want to fully reveal um, every piece of the story as much as I kind of have pulled out some sort, sort of thematic elements. But I would love at the outset, if you kind of want to give a little bit of an idea of the setting of this story so that people have a better foundation for kind of looking at some of these thematic elements, that would just be, that would be swell. So do you want me to answer kind of where, what led me to the story or more mm. sort of the idea behind it? I can answer it a couple different ways, but I, mm. I think there's a couple ways to answer what you're asking. Why don't you talk about what led you to this story? Because this is coming from your perspective and because we're getting to hear your oral retelling of that, I think that that is the the most prominent thing for for our conversation. Okay. so. I've been, as I mentioned, I've been a journalist for a long time, and most of my reporting has been in the American West. And as I always say, like, you don't cover the West without covering Native nations and Native communities. So I've mostly written for national magazines. And over the years, I've, you know, had the honor and privilege and joy of getting to be in lots of rural and over to me, what are overlooked often communities uh, overlooked, especially by like more large mainstream media outlets. And yet I was hired 
So let me even go back earlier. 22 years ago, one of my very earliest assignments where I got to leave the office, it was at High Country News, uh, and I was a young reporter there, and I got to leave the office, and I drove the company car up to the Pine Ridge Reservation, and I was writing an article about this effort there among Lakota to flout uh, American drug law to say, we're a sovereign nation. We get to make our own rules about what we do on our land. And we think there's an economic development opportunity in growing hemp. And so we're going to grow hemp. And the Drug Enforcement Administration disagreed with this effort and kept burning down their hemp fields. But I was there interviewing people about this. And I had no idea what I was doing. And I had no idea how, who I was. I really was so naive. I thought who I am doesn't matter. I'm just here to collect stories. And I even at the time would wear clothes that I thought didn't convey any personality. I mean, of course, any choice of what you're wearing (laughs) conveys some choice, right? But I would have like very plain kind of clothes that I I would mostly, I like to wear vintage clothes and things like that. But on reporting trips, I just wear jeans and t-shirts and um, thinking so naively that like people weren't immediately having an impression of me. And Mm -hmm. I also didn't know at the time how to kind of just hold the silence that so often happens in conversations. And I was, I was nervous and I was in the truck with this Buffalo rancher and I, I, it was quiet and I decided to tell him about myself to sort of make friends. And I told him my family used to be ranchers in South Dakota and thinking that this would like endear me to him. But of course it it would of course signal to him immediately like, Oh, your family took my family's land. (laughs) And it took me, he was polite, but cold. And I didn't understand for a very long time what that meant. And in many ways, And the book starts in that scene of me in the car with that guy. And and it was only after years of reporting in Native communities that I realized, oh, my God, this story is not the way the federal government has treated Native nations, the legacy of harm about those policies that continues to this day. This is not a societal issue. This is not a story that lives outside of me. I I'm deeply connected to this in a personal way because my ancestors received free land under the Homestead Act, free land that had recently belonged to the Lakota Nation. And the book aims to, is it is an entang- what I call an entangled history. It is a braiding then of my Jewish ancestors' immigrant story of fleeing oppression, terrible circumstances in Russia, and coming to this country in large part because of the free land on offer and the way that the benefits that they received repeatedly uh, from that land and from other federal policies and opportunities were really came at great cost to the Lakota Nation. There's this photograph in the book, um, excuse me, there's a photograph, maybe I can find it really quickly and show it to you here, but that uh, was also always a mystery growing up, like mm-hmm. these mysterious stories of my great-great-uncle Jack shaking hands with a man who's dressed in full Lakota regalia. And we, in my family, he was misidentified. This man was misidentified as Chief Red Cloud, who's a very famous um, leader on what became Pine Ridge Reservation. 
but he wasn't like what you don't have to know Lakota history very much to immediately say that's definitely not Red Cloud. And the first time I about five years ago that I started the research for this book and went to South Dakota and was meeting with tribal historians and elders, they said, oh, that looks like Joseph Whitebull. And Joseph Whitebull is a really famous person. He was the nephew of Sitting Bull. He was chief of the Minikoju Lakota. There's a whole book that was written about him in the 30s. And I, through my sources, because I had spent a few years at that point writing a series of stories about Native nations that had ran in the Nation magazine and in Indian Country Today, um, there were people that trusted me. There were people that felt like I knew how to do reporting with context and compassion. Mm. And so because of that, I had a, a source who was like, oh, I know the White Bull family. And he connected me with Doug White Bull, who was this beloved, he's still alive, but he he had been a beloved retired teacher and loves history. And the first day I met Doug, he said, I am the oldest living descendant of the man in that photograph. And so the the book is also it's a broader Lakota history, but it's a specific White Bull family history in the same way that it's a specific Sinekin family history. And and then the other thing I ask a lot of my readers, because I'm not just braiding these two. Uh, sometimes I felt like I was like writing like double Dutch. I had this vision like I was doing double mm, Dutch. Yeah, um, I love that. <laughs> uh, when I really felt like I was doing it right, I was like, okay, I'm coming over here. I'm coming over here. I'm pulling it all together. Uh, some days, very few days I felt that way, but some days I did. But um, I also, it was very important to me for many reasons that this isn't just that idea of time that you started us talking mm-hmm. with, that this isn't yeah. something that just lives in the past. The idea that the history is so connected to what's happening right now. So I also move back and forth throughout time. I have um, the stories of people that are no longer living that are in the White Bull family and the Sinekin family. But I also, Doug White Bull is, is on the page. And my Aunt Etta, who is 90 years old and our family matriarch, she's on the page. And they sort of help explain and tell stories in this current moment about the past and help bring to light the legacy of the past today. And then, of course, I'm on there a little bit throughout as well. I think that that entanglement is such a beautiful thing. And I'm curious what you were going to say that you ask of readers, because I think that there's an entanglement here, too, for everyone that's reading this and you know you you have this great quote you know thinking about history and uh, sort of its its intertwinedness and its non-linearity uh you say what follows here isn't a complete history of, of either the lakota or immigrant jews but is a narrative of the connective tissue between these groups the ways their entangled histories pull and push against each other refute the idea that pieces of the past exist in isolation at its most basic form this is an american story it belongs to us all and and so I'm curious what you were going to ask of readers, but I also want to say that that connective tissue, which I think is such a, a, a beautiful metaphor, um, something that's really tangible, entangles the reader into the story and, and their personal history. Oh, I love that. That's so cool. I love that you saw that. 
I mean, I I'll I want to answer this in so many different ways. I mean, one way I will say is like, um, I think it was very important to me and kind of exciting and surprising that this idea, if you tell these histories in silos, you miss so much. So if you tell like a Jewish history over here and you tell a Lakota history over here, you miss the depth of the injustice of federal policy, plainly put. Only by putting these histories right next to each other do you see the way that the United States made choices and picked and chose and often over and over again, really prioritized settlers and the descendants of settlers over Native Americans. Yes. And I, I would argue it's something that is going to this day. That's still happening. Yes. Um, so I think that is is part of why I the, the why I wanted to tell that. And it was a relief to me. My editor was the one who was like, you don't have to tell a complete history. You can't do it. Um, this yeah. is a different kind of book. This is that. This is those places where it overlaps. And I was really like, okay, I can do that. I can't tell a complete one. And I don't know that I should be the person to tell a complete Lakota history. I'm not Lakota. Um, and I am just a reporter. I'm not an expert in, in Jewish history, but I can excavate, hopefully, those those meeting points. And And then, yeah, I think in terms of how do I entangle the reader, my favorite... The book is not out until uh, next week, but some people have had advanced copies. And my favorite feedback so far is when people say, I read this story and I was reading about your family, but it made me think about my own. Mm -hmm. Because that is honestly the ambition here, is that people are not, I, I hope it doesn't feel pushy. I hate pushy books mm -hmm. um, as a reader. It doesn't. But I... Okay, good. Um, <laughs> but I really was hoping people would start to find themselves here. Yes. How, what is my positionality to this, to this history? Because as the incredible historian, Margaret Jacobs, who wrote an incredible book called After 100 Winters, which I would really recommend, um, she, she, she talks to me about how we are all, unless you are indigenous, you have benefited. In, in you're living in America, you have benefited from the taking of, of Native land. And of course, if your ancestors came here on slave ships against their will, or your family arrived last week as immigrants, your maybe your distance to the benefits of this history is different from mine. Is is maybe it's more maybe it's different than my proximity because as the descendant of homesteaders, you know, there's all this incredible research that have been done by sociologists that say. Mm -hmm. Actually, if you descend, if you're one of the 25% of American adults living today whose family descends from homesteaders, wow. right? That's a big number. It's maybe That's as a big as, number. Yeah, it's a lot of us. Yeah. And there, this guy, Thomas Shapiro, who's a sociologist at Brandeis, he, he writes, you know, it's likely that if you have a second home, if you can afford to pay for college, if you have a first home, that is all based on generational, intergenerational wealth that probably came from your family being homesteaders. I want to acknowledge here that many people who homesteaded went belly up. They didn't make it. They lost everything. Even those who did, they worked tremendously hard, including my ancestors. You know, I mean, their lives were incredibly difficult. I don't want to take any of that away by saying, by what I'm saying. I'm just saying that. Indigenous scholars have called the Homestead Act 
but massive affirmative action for white people. And I think Mm. you have to Mm. see that that's true when you really look at the history here. Yes, absolutely. And I think that you illuminate the history of the Homestead Act and the cost of the Homestead Act very well. And I think that, you know, to speak to what you just said, so many things can be true at once, right? That there, there are many truths nested within this. And I actually want to harken back to something you said. If you tell history in silos, you miss so much. Because one of the things that I I kind of pulled out of this is how much we tend to isolate. Um, how much we tend to isolate both history and and you you even say this, you know, history like this book moves forward and backward in steps large and small until the footprints between eras merge, quashing the idea that the past can be put in a box, right? That we have this idea that we can silo history. And I think that a lot of history books are written from that perspective. But really, you know, and and at the same time, you have this isolation that I think the that some of the policies at the time are are perpetuating that that we are trying to isolate individuals towards this idea of and I'm putting this in big quotes into progress um, and to isolate people from their culture, from their land, and from so many different places. And you tell both the story of some of the ways in which we're isolated, but also the ways in which the policies that were enacted in America at the turn of the 20th century, the late 19th century, became the basis for policies that were enacted in Nazi Germany, right? And so history is weaving throughout time and place and is not isolated. It is not isolated. Well, and I I will say I think it it raises the question who is who benefits from the telling of history in silos? Who benefits from the idea that we're done? That's in the past, we've moved on, we only look to the future. I think you gotta those are important questions for all of us to be asking. Um, because when you start th- those those answers are make make some of those choices clear of like let's go back to the myth of America that the, like so many of the myths that we want to perpetuate oh that was so long ago that does nothing to do with me today those policies mm-hmm. that history because then you have no responsibility for it if it has nothing to do with you if history happened in the past it doesn't continue now well then we're moved on and it's and it's really interesting when you think about the way like what I've learned from Lakota elders talking about Lakota storytelling, well, the the very evident connectivity then you have to the past. If your grandmother told you a story, like Doug Whitebull, let me be specific, Doug Whitebull's grandfather survived Wounded Knee. Wounded Knee, I, I as a young reporter visited Wounded Knee, um, you know, the memorial that's there, be that, be that as it may, it's very limited at the moment. Um, and it felt like something that happened so long ago. But suddenly I'm talking to Doug Whitebull. I'm sitting in the same room with him. This is something that happened to his grandfather. History is alive in a different way right there, you know. Um, 
So, and and then I just want to revisit, you raised this point that I feel like is such a, to me, was like a really surprising and fascinating thread that I, of the book that I didn't plan to write about when I sat down to write this book, which was the connection between Hitler and Nazi Germany and American policy. I yes. write in the book about how, like, as a kid, I was obsessed with the Holocaust. I was like, I read any book I could get, you know, starting with Anne Frank, the Diary of Anne Frank, but just like any book I could get my hand on. I was so interested. I can tell you I have a kid right now who's very interested in the same way, and it's totally unnerving, and I don't love that that my kid is so like wanting to read about these awful things and they're nine years old, but be that it as it may. Um, when I was talking to Doug at one point early, he said to me, you know, we, your people survived a Holocaust and America, it was the day after international Holocaust remembrance day. And he was like, your people survived a Holocaust. We should definitely talk about that. That's important. But my people survived a Holocaust here in America and it lasted for 400 years and no one ever talks about it. And I just, and he's the one who told me that Hitler based many of his policies on American policies to restrict the rights of black Americans and native Americans. Um, There's another book that we should add to that list called Hitler's American Model that was written by James Whitman and another called Learning from the Germans uh, by Susan Nyman that that both are amazing. Cast, Isabel Wilkerson's book, Cast, references them as well. Mm -hmm. I would add to that, too, because so many of the eugenics policies uh, that were enacted on indigenous people in America form the basis for eugenics policies in Nazi Germany, which uh, Adam Rutherford talks about in his book, Control, um, which which is, I mean, and and eugenics that continued, you know, into the 70s, sterilization policies that were happening to indigenous people in Canada as recently as 2018. Um, and so, you know, policies both for many different policies formed the basis of that and were interwoven. And I was so struck when, when Doug says that, when Doug talks about a 400 year Holocaust that we, that we barely talk about, that is not written about in the history books, um, that has been siloed and isolated and obscured from the story that we tell ourselves as Americans about Westward expansion and about the Homestead Act. And I think, too, some of the, and I'm, I'm curious what you think about this, some of the rugged individualism that I think came out of that time frame that has formed a lot of American myth making, this idea of, of rugged can do um, that happened in that, in, in that space. I mean, I this isn't in the book actually, but it it's something I think about all the time. A friend of a Lakota friend of mine talked about all these pioneer societies, like these societies that honor pi- celebrate the pioneers or celebrate being a descendant of the pioneers. And he said, "I am so hurt by that. The pioneers, many of them were part of massacring my ancestors. Like from his perspective, the pioneers 
are not people to be lauded and adored. They're people that, that yeah, perpetuate and manifest destiny and, and um, often were very um, seeing Native people as, as lesser than. And it had never occurred to me until he told me that, uh, that, that just even the word pioneer would be upsetting to someone sitting in a different place, even though I had never heard or thought about uh, a Holocaust in America that was, you know, put on Native people. I'll tell you, all over Lakota country, people talk about the Holocaust that happened to them. It's not like, an, you know, Doug isn't the first or only person that used those words to describe it to me. So it's just, as Judge, as Judge Abby has often said to me, we as Native people, we picked the wrong superpower. We're invisible. Mm. Mm. I think that's changing. I really do. I mean, I think there's been an incredible Native-led effort to, to change the visibility and hit television shows like Reservation Dogs is just one example of that, um, of, of Native-led efforts to say, here's the story. Here's what, here's what it has happened and what is happening. And so, um, I, I hope that's changing. I hope that's changing too. And, and I think that stories like the one that you tell in the cost of free land, I think opens up one, uh, maybe some curiosity, uh, on the part of the reader to explore history beyond what has been told to us in school systems or in books. I mean, I know the New York Times recently ran a piece looking at the boarding schools that so many indigenous people were forcibly put into during that time frame and some of the deaths that occurred as a result of that. Um, Yeah, I mean, thousands of children were died and and I mean, one of the most horrible things I read about was the treatment of children at these schools. It, it's just awful. And and I will also say some Native people had a good experience at these schools. So it's not uniform, but most people did not. And um, yeah. I, I just, the, the horrible abuse, they, these were not schools meant for like to turn Native American children into the next president or doctors. They were absolutely training grounds to assimilate Native people to make them white laborers whose jobs were no longer dependent on land. And so one of the most horrible things I read was, so kids would only go to school in the morning. They would only have academics in the morning. And in the afternoons, it was industrial education. They would learn how to be, how to do the laundry, how to be carpenters, how to be farmers. And the little children who died of disease or were murdered by abuse at these schools, their classmates in the carpentry department would make their coffins. And it's just horrible. Hmm. Yeah. Horrible. I, uh, yeah. I mean, there are no, there are no words f- for that. And I think, I think that's something that we, we haven't seen. And I think again, that speaks to, this idea where so much of these policies were about isolating families, isolating individuals from their culture. These were boarding schools where culture was the first thing that 
people were cut off from, that children were cut off from, that their their hair was cut, that their their languages were were barred from from being spoken. And um, just a, a deep sense of isolating in order to create this idea of capitalist individuals. I actually, I pulled a, a quote about this um, looking at the Dawes Act, and this is from Henry Dawes, you know, that the idea was to, and this is end quote, to take Indians out one by one from under the tribe, place him in a position to become an independent American citizen. And then before the tribe is aware of it, its existence as a tribe is gone. Dawes goes on to say, give him a farm, the thinking went, and he will spring into the shape of an independent capitalist, transforming the reservation into the Jeffersonian ideal of a society of farmers. Um, I mean, the policies get really complicated. And as far as I can tell, there were sort of, there were people who were true believers in this idea of social uplift and this idea that like, mm -hmm. oh, these are, these are people who we need to help evolve. I mean, really big quotes around evolve and we can, by giving them Christianity and education and farming, they will evolve and be white. But there were other people at the same exact time, policymakers who I think, and the experts I've, you know, interviewed seem to think were less, like far more interested in how do we get these this these nations of people whose lives are dependent on land how do we separate them from that need so how do we break their culture and religion and their economics to needing land so that we can take the land and it, and, and 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 in like a very simple way that's what this was all about i do, i don't think you can say accurately it was only that but i think it was certainly partly that for sure. And then the, there's this like window dressing and accessorizing of, oh, we're doing this for the good. It's being sold to the American people as this is really good for Native Americans. This is great. I mean, there was like all these policies that took so much land away from Native Americans that were called like this is this is in the New York Times. They were reported as like the Emancipation Act for Native people. This is going to set them free. You know, so we have a different perspective now than we did then. Yes. And I think that I think that a lot of that perspective, I mean, the idea of social Darwinism, I pulled up uh, my friend James sent me um, this book, The Political Gene by Dennis Sewell, um, and looking at some of those those sort of social Darwinism that had happened of the time and the idea of of what it meant to and big quotes, civilize people. And yeah. I think that um, that disconnection too, you know, one of the things we've talked a lot about on this podcast, um, from personal perspectives is how much place and, and land shapes us that how much our connection to that is, is a very important connection. And so to be severed from land, from place and, and from all of the things that that represents within then your space is is unimaginable, and and you tell some stories in the book about just the depth of that, and and the way that policies shaped that, and and further shaped it in some of these 
places where where kids were sent away to to schools and and this act of of civilizing or or creating a class of of workers too which um is something that we, we've touched on on this podcast that happens actually throughout time and in, in a variety of different places to create these these systems yeah yeah and 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 I do want to come back to this idea that land is at the heart of this book. And I think that, you know, as somebody who's worked in agriculture for the last 15 years, this was an important story for me to begin to better understand, too. And you say at the top that land, who has it and who doesn't, propels this narrative from the beginning. And I think think that this is interwoven into so much of some of the stories that we tell even within agricultural spaces. What do you think, like why, what, I am really interested in this idea of like, what counts as a connection to land that's something you can sort of hold up as having claim on it. You know what I mean? Oh. Like it's on the one hand, the Lakota nation and many native nations, as I understand it, as I've been told is like, consider their spirituality, their whole existence as a, as a people and a nation as as tied to specific places. That's a pretty strong claim on a piece of land. But I've also mm -hmm. interviewed like the descendants of homesteaders who are like, this is my family land. It means mm -hmm. everything to me. It's who I am. It's my whole identity. And, um, and and that's true to them. I, I have this interesting experience of always sort of having this idea that because I descend from this these ranchers, um, because that was so much of the family story about who we were, that that was something that was like a deep piece of myself. And really, only while reporting on this story, like I kept going back to South Dakota and walking the land around the ranch and on the ranch. And like waiting to feel something, waiting to feel like mm -hmm. this is my place. I'm home. I'm here. And I never, ever felt that way. Actually, I felt very, mm -hmm. I never grew up in South Dakota. My mom never grew up in South Dakota. Her grandmother was a baby in South Dakota, but her family moved to Minnesota. They always had the land, but they, um, she never really lived there. Like, I, I at one point I talk about in the book how I the the very kind woman who's now owns the land that had been my family's, she had let my cousin Aviva and I come and walk around and there was some like kind of what my husband accurately described as junk, <laughs> kind of like old bits of I nails and bottles and like, you know, pieces of what maybe was like a piece of wood from the old homestead shack. Mm -hmm. We had we had maps and we figured out where their land would have been on the ranch. And, you know, I bring this stuff home and I give my husband this like old glass bottle and he's like, what? Like you could have brought me a keychain. I would have liked that. You know, like, <laughs> it's like, what is this? This is not that awesome. And, and I, on the one hand, I still sit at my desk at home. I have a window I look out and on the top of the window is this like old wooden hmm. piece of wood and has a bent nail coming through it. And Maybe it was a piece of one of my ancestors' homes. On the other hand, it really means nothing to me. Like I grew up in the Northwest. I feel really at home and a sense of groundedness when I am hiking in a rainy 
place with big trees and a river nearby. Like that's the landscape that I have mapped onto. Mm-hmm. And my connection and my family's connection to each other has so much to do with storytelling, which is very Jewish, mm-hmm. has so much to tell with food, with mm-hmm. caring for each other, um, showing up for one another. It, it really has nothing to do with land. So mm. I don't have answers for this. I, I just, I think it's interesting. I feel like it's an evolving question for me of what gives us a claim on land. Oh, I don't have an answer to that at all. And I think it's a really good question, but I do have a my perspective and experience. I don't know if if it's relevant to the conversation, but I'd be happy to just like share briefly. Um, I don't, you know, my experience working in agriculture is that I f- feel like I am a part of an ecosystem, right? That, that my actions within a space affect all the species that are around me and that I am interconnected to that we are we are sharing this space and and whether it is the breath that i breathe out the carbon dioxide that becomes plant tissues or you know the food and the the inputs that i might put on the land that there is this conversation that is happening between me and a space i don't think that that gives me any claim i think it gives me a sense of responsibility. And I know that one of the things that has come up a lot on this podcast is that the place where we grew up, that that ecosystem and I, and, and that grew up, not from an intergenerational, not, not where our families might've landed, but those ecosystems that we grew up in have a sort of resonance with our biology, whether that is sort of a, a microbiome driven thing, right? That that we are just the microbes that we have accumulated from a place. Um, and, and that that feels like home. You know, I grew up in Colorado. And when I am in the Rocky Mountain West, that is when I am home. I live now in New York, Vermont, and I feel... Uh, I feel a little lost in this ecosystem at times. I um, love and so that. that just, that's so just beautiful. my perspective. No, I love that. And I thank you for sharing it. I think it's so gorgeous how you talk about that sense of reciprocity with the land. And it made me realize that how I had talked about this idea of claim is so coming from you know, a kind of settler mindset that my Lakota friends mm-hmm. talk about like, you can't own the land. We live with the land. We could never own the land, which is why so much of the treaty negotiations of their ancestors were confused because what did it mean to own a land that like there was this coming, they were coming from a totally different idea. You wouldn't own the land that you're, that, that like was your aunt, that was like your ancestor, you wouldn't own a river. You lived with the river. You cared for the river. That responsibility is totally inherent in that and that re- those relationships with land. Um, and key to that is responsibility is, is how, like Judge Abby always talks about the Yurok are salmon people and they, the salmon provide for their them, but their job that they see it is, I hope I'm not getting this wrong, but what I understand, what I've been told is that 
is to make sure the rivers and the oceans are healthy enough places that the salmon have a have a home to live in. Yes. So, yeah. And and I think that that indigenous wisdom and and is I hope that that becomes a, a more prominent space of storytelling because I think that all of us in in some way do belong to our ecosystems and that we are inextricably a part of it. Um, and and to speak to that, you know, that idea that nobody has claim on land. I was really struck at one point in the book, uh, um, and and I there was this idea. It wasn't attributed to any one person that one does not sell their mother. Right, that we we are all we come from this. You can't. It can't be sold. It, there's no price that could be put on it. Um, and, and it turns out that's actually also an old. That's a. There's a Jewish grounds for this same idea in the Torah. Mm. There's something called Shemitah, which it, it gets complicated. And and I am for sure not an. You know, I'm no expert on this. But basically, there's writing that says like. You no one actually God is the only person that owns land. You no one no one person owns land, and so there's this idea that every cycle of years, um, all debts are forgiven on land, and the land mm. changes hands. And because, um, and of course, that's never. It doesn't seem like that was ever really upheld by uh, like ancient Jews. This idea that no one really owns land, and but there is increasingly a lot of ideas that Jewish farmers are taking from that idea of Shemitah and um, and making it a useful tool in social justice practice of like, how do we give back um, some of our land to others who need it? And it's really beautiful. And it's cool to see that kind of echo a little bit of an echo there. Yeah. I love that. I'd love to, I'll find some things about that afterwards and, and include them in the show notes because I think that's, that's really beautiful. And I have some friends that are part of the um, Jewish farmers network and, yes. and, and, and might be able to, to kind of give me some, some resources. They can, they're, they're on yeah. it. They're great over yeah. there. Yeah. yeah. I think that's fantastic. I, I wanted to I wanted to kind of talk about this idea of linearity really quick before we before we wrap up because I thought that this was really interesting and one of the things that you brought up that I think a lot about and I have a lot of conversations um my friend James that I mentioned before and I talk a lot about this um you have this quote and you say my family had been sold the American idea of progress which they understood was measured in money and moved in only one direction and I thought that this was really, we talk so much about progress. And I think within history, you know, and, and some of the conversations we've had that these policies were about moving things forward at the time. And, and progress literally means, I looked this up, the etymology of progress, you know, it's, it's the Latin greatest, which means a step or a pace or a gate to walk, to go, and pro, which means forward. So it is literally this, this sense of forward motion. And one of the things that I think is important about looking at history, which was my least favorite subject in school and has become my most favorite topic to discuss on the podcast, is that it helps us understand 
where we are going to a degree or what is happening in our present and to give us context for how we've gotten here, which is incredibly important to help illuminate this idea of the container that we're, we're sort of given, right? That there's these sort of bumpers that history gives us where outside of it, what we may not see isn't becoming a part of, of how we move forward. And so I, I kind of wanted to ask you about this idea of progress and, and where history ties into that. And through the lens of this book, because you did such a beautiful job that our, our past is also our present and it is also our future and where we're going. I think a lot about how when we're stepping, I know you love to walk and every in, inside of every step is a fall. Like you don't mm. move forward without being unbalanced. You know, you don't, you have to, yeah, you are risking a fall. You are, are, you are unbalancing ever to move in any direction. And, and so I was just thinking about that idea of progress. Like how do we include in the idea of progress, that instability that's inherent in it? And I don't know if I'm answering your question. No, I love this. This is this is exactly where I wanted to go. I didn't know I wanted to go here, but this is exactly where I want to be. I mean, I just I've been thinking about that a lot for a long time. And I I think that it is it's unkind to ourselves and to our ancestors and to our future descendants to not include the complexity. And I think we can do it. Like, I think there's such a big conversation in America that we can't all agree on, like, what do we teach our children and what's an un unsafe thing for our kids to learn? And I even just was talking, just mentioned it earlier, that it's hard for me that my kid is so obsessed with wanting to learn about the Nazis because it's so upsetting and I worry about what is developmentally appropriate. So I get it. And I think we, I believe in us. Like I believe that we yes. can hold multiple ideas in our heads at once that don't all, that don't tell a that like we have such an urge for narrative that is here, this thing happened, then this thing happened. And now I'm in a new place. That's the arc of every story. And and I'm just curious, is that what always happens? Is that true? And um, how do you include the mess, I guess, in the beauty and, and include that instability as we move forward? Because really, that's, that's how it works. I, I, I just really love what you said, and I, I wanted to give a little space for it because one of the things that I'm constantly trying to to pick at on this is complexity, is just how complex everything around us is, whether it's it's health or history or ecology or all of these different spaces. And I think that we've reached this place, you know, to go back to terminology that you used, where we prefer to talk about silos. We prefer to talk about single solutions 
and single problems, that there are these, you know, silver bullet fixes. And we lose how interconnected everything is. And I ask myself often what it would mean to return to a sense of complexity because I, like you, believe that we are capable of holding really big, complex, and messy stuff that might not be, and to you, you so beautifully, this is one of my favorite things about walking, is that every step is a fall, right? That there is some instability, but it is in looking at that interconnected space that isn't linear, that isn't singular, that isn't siloed or isolated, that I don't know. I mean, I I hope that it it puts us in the mix with everything else and that it helps us feel connected as opposed to isolated. And I think, you know, Judge Abby at one point I was like, how do I as I was grappling with everything I was learning and she said, you don't have to do everything all at once. Just just do one piece. Just do one piece and then do the next. And maybe that's the next project. Maybe that's the next thing you pay attention to. So I also think it's important to make space for like, as we, as we expand the container to include all the mess and all the complexity and the dense weaves of everything, it doesn't mean that it's so overwhelming that then you have to suddenly have these solutions for all of it at once. Um, But you just do a little bit, you know? Yeah. A little bit at a time. Yeah. Thank you for that. Thank you for exploring that with me. I really, I really appreciate that. And I really appreciate your perspective. Um, I wanted to, I wanted to wrap up and I wanted to talk about what happens now, you know, and I think at the book, there's a great question of how can we help? And Judge Abby has some, some beautiful words about healing. And I think you too explore some, ideas about Jewish teachings of repair. And so I I want to close out by talking about how can we help and and what resources are there for people that see themselves interwoven in this story as a reader and, and want to be a part of that process. I'm laughing a little because honestly, I feel like we could have spent a whole hour just talking about this one question. (laughs) And it's really a big thread throughout the book. But I will just say that I, for me, early on in the process, Judge Abby said to me, if you're going to grapple with how to respond to the history, not just retell the history, but really think about like, well, what do we do about it today, which was important to me. She said, you have to study the Jews. What do the Jews say about how to respond to a harm? even one that you didn't directly commit, but one you've benefited from. And because judge, you know, she's in her seventies. She is wise. She's smart. She's done this a long time. And in her experience and, and many judges throughout the country are looking to her for, as a, for really a model for how do you do justice in a, in a more compassionate and new way. It, mm. She says it like justice works best when it's grounded in your own culture. And, um, And so that led me to spend three years studying with my rabbi here in Portland, Oregon, Rabbi Benjamin Barnett. We spent three years doing a process called Hevruta, studying in pairs where we would read ancient Jewish texts and discuss them and also look at the 
the work of some contemporary rabbis who are looking to these old texts for ideas about how to move forward. And I also was honored to get to talk to Lakota elders, some Lakota elders and learn about sort of Lakota ideas of how you move forward after there's been a fracture and a healing. And all of those different ideas led me, and I, I think it would be reductive for me to say, and here's Snap. This is what I came up with for my own family. And I, I really would Absolutely. love people to read the book because I think it's very easy to have a hot take if you just, if I just say, and here's what my family's doing and Snap, you know, wash our hands of it. We're moving on. But um, I did feel in the end compelled to make action, not just, I mean, not only to write the book, which is in a Jewish context, like if you're going to do steps toward healing, um, telling the truth out loud is a step towards repentance and repair. Um, but there are there are five or six steps. So this is that's mm. just one. I do really think that I don't feel like I have a perfect solution, and I would hate for everyone to to sort of think that that's what this is about. But there are many people in America who are starting to think about this. There's an incredible website called Reconciliation Rising which tracks efforts of um, settler descendants and Native Americans to kind of reconcile this history. And that's a neat place to look to for inspiration. And I also have in the back of the book a, a place called Resources for Further Research that is a collection of tools that were helpful to me when I started out on this research to find that I hope can help readers and listeners find themselves in this history. And so it's it's tools that and specific websites to go to to start to think about the way you yourself have benefited at cost to others from American policies of land taking of native people. I think that's fantastic and I'll I'll include I'll include those resources within the show notes. I know you also talk about the Indian Land Tenure Foundation and Land Back um, in the book and and that's something that I want to include as well and I do want to put the note here that I think I hope I hope my listeners and all of the complexity at, that we've explored and the idea of of searching for nuance understand that this is complex and nuanced and so I think they'll they'll uh, connect to, to, to that and, and to, to everything that you've just said in terms of leaving room for a lot of complexity. And I think that, that part of exploring that complexity is having these conversations out loud about it. And, and even if you're kind of fumbling through it sometimes, like I'm sure I have throughout this, throughout this interview, um, <laughs> Well, I think that's beautiful. And I, I, I really want to ask people to read this book. I mean, as we begin to wrap up, I, I, I really want to leave space for just what incredible stories. There are so many stories in the book. And, and I hope that we teased at some of the greater themes in a way that that invites people to explore just how beautiful, beautifully you have woven together so many different threads. And I think that the apparent care and depth with which you've done that, that does 
draw the reader in as their own thread and also speak to to something that is incredibly complex and i'm i'm just i'm super grateful to you uh for mm. for doing it and for drawing me into the story as well thanks kate um, yeah. Do you want to do you want to tell people where they can find you and where they can find the cost of free land? You also have, you know, on your website resources of the journalism that you've done over the years, which I think speaks to an agricultural community, to a Western community, which when many of my I mean, just just everybody. So I have a website. It's www.rebecca-claren.com. C-L-A-R-R-E-N. And there are a lot of information about the book. I wrote a novel that was based in rural Colorado that came out five years ago called Kickdown. There's information about that. And yes, as you said, I've been writing about the land and denizens of the American West for a long time. So there's links to that. Um, the book, The Cost of Free Land, is coming out with Viking Penguin on October 3rd. There's an audiobook that will be released that same day that I recorded. So if yes. you like the sound of my voice, oh. you could check that out. And um, you can get it really anywhere that you buy books is great. Although I would like to put a plug for indie bookstores. Mm -hmm. I'm doing many events in October and November of this year. I know people mm -hmm. come to podcasts and I hope they come to this podcast many months and years in the future. But if you are listening and if you're interested, I will be, there's a whole bunch of events listed on my website, but I'll, I'm doing a number of free national virtual events. Um, Awesome. And okay. also, as well as many in person. And, um, and in many cases, I'm doing these events with Native American uh, thinkers and writers themselves, which I think will make for really interesting conversations. So um, I love yeah. that. More Come stories, more can. interwoven stories. I'm hoping yeah. to make it down to New York. I know that you're going to be there in November. Um, and, and I just, I love being in person. It's so nice to connect in that way. And, and I'm so excited for people to read the book and, and again, just, just thank you for, for everything and for spending the time with us here. Thank you so much, Kate. It's really yeah. been a pleasure. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Mind, Body, and Soil podcast. If what you found resonated with you, may I ask that you share it with your friends or leave us a rating and review wherever you listen to podcasts? This act of reciprocity helps others find Mind, Body, and Soil. If you're looking for more, you can find us at groundworkcollective.com and at Kate underscore Kavanaugh, that's K-A-T-E underscore K-A-V-A-N-A-U-G-H on Instagram. I would like to give a very special thank you to China and Seth Kent of the band All Right, All Right for the clips from their beautiful song Over the Edge from their album The Crucible. You can find them at All Right, All Right on Instagram and wherever you listen to music. <laughs>